Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Pilates for Beginners with Kristen McGee. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Data received. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! We have some reminders here, four of them, so I'm going to do them quickly. Number one, YouTube. Search for Our Three Cents and subscribe to our channel. Loads of great videos, more coming all the time. Currently in the process of doing a playthrough of the original Rayman on the Sega Saturn, and I've been uploading my progress on the YouTube channel. It's been a really fun adventure, so check that out, and please do share any videos you like as well. Number two, Twitch. Subscribe to our Twitch channel if you'd like to be able to watch streaming stuff live. Twitch.tv slash O3C podcast. We've got some really good fun things coming up, so do subscribe to that. Number three, Instagram. We now have an Instagram profile and Instagram TV channel where we're putting all our videos and images from behind the scenes of this show, I guess. Instagram.com slash O3C podcast. Follow us and share what you like. And finally, number four, Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing, then please do check out our Patreon page and consider pledging a little towards what we're doing and get some fantastic perks in exchange for your support. Patreon.com slash our three cents. So this week we have our 24th favorite video games of all time. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Okay. Three points currently separate you. Let's see what happens here. The Nintendo Wii was released in what year? 2007. Fuck. 2007 is not the correct answer. Oh, it's so quick. It's it's around there. 2008. That is also incorrect. But Minty was closest because it was 2006. So the point goes to Minty. Congratulations, Minty. You have clawed a point back. There is only two points separating you now. Well done. Oh, yeah. Worldwide release, 2006. Well... November, December, so I was, yeah, I was nearly right. I'll take that one. Close enough. Dirty yeah, point. exactly. It's not the filthiest point oh, you've no, had. No. Just, just swipe it off my jeans. <laughs> oh. So we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. Hello. Jason Scott has asked us, what games did we love as kids that for whatever reason we never owned? Now, I've had several games that I've lusted after in the past, but usually through one means or another, I've always ended up owning it or like borrowing it, extended borrowing it, in inverted commas borrowing it, <laughs> or like in some cases buying a whole new console just to play yeah. it on. Like I remember in year seven seeing you, Chris, playing on your Game Boy Color and me desperately wanting to get Harvest Moon. I remember playing Theme Park World on a friend's PC and then like saving up my pocket money for a few weeks to buy that. I remember really wanting to get Pokemon Snap and the Pokemon Special Edition N64 that came out. I mean, I never got the console, but I did end up buying Snap on the Wii U Virtual Console when that came out. Quite a way back on the podcast, we spoke about Disney games. And I think I mentioned then that I had like supremely yearned for a Mega Drive as a kid and was especially fixated on the Aladdin game after seeing my friend Philip Alexandrakis playing it. It's a game that I've never owned, actually, uh, although I have been recently tempted to buy the remastered double pack of Aladdin and the Lion King on the Switch. It's a nice pack. Yeah, the thing for me, like with with that release, is that 
if you remember when I talked about Mario 64 needing like an archival style release. Yes. That Disney double pack is probably about as close as we've got. Okay. So so there is kind of, uh, you know, behind the scenes artwork and stuff like that. You can play versions of the game that came out on the Game Boy as well as the Mega Drive and the SNES. So you can kind of appreciate slight differences in, oh, in cool. how it was presented. That's, that's really nice. And even if you're not going to play through all of them to their entirety, that's the kind of thing I really want to support when it comes to buying retro releases. Yeah, I like that. Much like yearning after the the Mega Drive, I mean, I've said before, I missed out on the 16-bit generation. There, there were loads of games that I wanted to get. You know, we clung on to our Master System all the way up until we got a Saturn. Yeah. So I think especially SNES games were particularly intriguing to me because I, I think I knew that if we were going to get a 16-bit console, we would, you know, stay Sega, get a Mega Drive. And I remember being particularly envious of SNES owners who had Super Mario All-Stars I absolutely adored the art style of the games. It was very, very different to anything that I'd seen on, uh, you know, on the Mega Drive or on the, obviously, the Master System. And obviously, it's the same art style as Super Mario World. And I just, I just love, like, the shininess of the gold coins and the bright colours and the sheer size of the Banzai Bill. But I was most drawn to the fact that it was a collection of games. And I thought, oh, that's just so incredible. Like, the four whole games in one game. <laughs> I, I thought... I would never need to have another game again, I'm sure. <laughs> and I've still never owned or played like the All-Stars versions of Mar- of the other Mario games. I, I mean, I'm, I know, again, I've probably got it on like an emulation station somewhere in my drawers. So I should uh, should snuffle that out and, and give it a whirl sometime. But how about, how about you? Minty, how about you? What game did you lust after as a kid that uh, that escaped your, uh, your infant tendrils? Well, I'm actually <laughs> going to talk about it in 20 weeks. So I'm not going to talk about it today. <laughs> oh. 20 weeks? Yeah, it's my number four video game. But that you never owned it? <laughs> no, I, I, I've got it. Well. Oh, I don't know how much to say without giving giving it away. <laughs> I didn't own it. I have it now. We'll say that much. Yeah. <laughs> if we move the goalposts a little, if we widen it a little, I think what I'm most coveting at the moment is anything on the PS4, to be honest. Like, I can't justify buying a new, completely new console and the VR just to play Tetris Effect. Yes. But, but boy, do I want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about you, Chris? What game did you uh, want as a kid and never never had? Well, similar to your household, I, I was a, a Sega kid. So it was always like the friends that had uh, Nintendo consoles or, or later the PlayStation 1. Were, you know, they had the games that I was always excited about but but never owned. Yeah. But my earliest memory of being like absolutely desperate to own a game I, I played elsewhere and that I've never, ever picked up. Uh, was the original Bubsy, <laughs> okay. oh. and like if if you play it now, it's it's a terrible game. Bubsy's <laughs> really really poor, and and if you've got like any knowledge of platform games now, you know Bubsy is shit because the character moves too fast, the the stages are big and empty, your jumping is really imprecise and floaty. But when I was a kid, like I was seven years old, and I, I know the age exactly because I played it the same day I went to see Toy Story at the cinema. It's, it's weird. These memories, these memories are in, <laughs> intertwined, like those yeah. two. Um, but I went to a friend's house afterwards and, and played Bubsy. And it drew me in because it had voice samples. And, and I'd never seen that in a video game at that point. Yeah. And, and Bubsy talks like throughout stages. He, he sort of quips at the beginning of every, every level you start. And, and looking at it at the time, I, I had no games that did this on the Mega Drive. I'd, I'd obviously never seen that on the Master System either. 
and and things like Bubsy saying, "What could possibly go wrong?" before a stage to me was like, "It's it's a cartoon. I'm playing a cartoon," <laughs> and and I was just desperate to have have a have a snes to be able to play that. I think it was on the Mega Drive as well, but I I just never got I never got the game. Bizarrely, I also played Donkey Kong Country that day, and that one didn't have the same impact to me at all. <laughs> I, I didn't think, you know, this this is one of the most remarkable looking games of the time. I was just like, wow, it's a it's a platform game, isn't it? They're not it's saying much. So yeah, it it would have been Bubsy that I went home to to you know tell mum and dad about. Oh, he says these funny things before each level. <laughs> so yeah, Bubsy, Bubsy's the one. I'm, I'm pleased to say my tastes have improved a bit over the years. <laughs> So there we go. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer or discuss in a roundabout way, then please do reach out to us on social media. Listen out for details on how to do that at the end of the episode. So what have we played this week? Shall I? I mean, I feel a bit bad about insisting on going first, but I'm, I've got so much to talk about because <laughs> I've just played so much this week, which is is mad. Like I mentioned, I've been playing through Rayman and I've now beaten worlds one, two, three, and four and had, I mean, mostly it's been fairly smooth, but there have been a couple of bits where I've just got, oh, just totally tied up on like one bit. There was one one bit in particular in like the Bandland world where I just couldn't, like the staves are really slippery and it was before I'd got the helicopter hair and that really helps control your jumping and where you're landing and the platforms were so slippery I just, just kept on flying off this one bit and I couldn't do it. But then I had a fairly, fairly smooth ride through uh, through Blue Mountains and, and through Picture City until I got to the final boss, which when you've only got three pieces of health to do an entire boss battle, which is very, very tricky. I mean, it took, well, it took me quite a lot of lives. And <laughs> if uh, if you missed seeing me play that live, then I, I will be getting the, uh, the video uploaded to our YouTube channel and Instagram TV channel in the next week or so. So you'll be able to see that. But I had another excellent Sea of Thieves session in the week, although I confess I pulled a bit of a boo-boo as I did accidentally sink our ship, which <laughs> was, was not good. <laughs> so, like, your ship has harpoons on it, which you can use to, like, fish barrels and chests out of the sea or speed up bringing them aboard your boat if you've, like, accrued a bit of a pile on a beach. Now, one of the other things that are in the game are these very powerful gunpowder barrels. And often these will appear being held by a skeleton and you need to get out of their sharpish to avoid being blown to the ship of the damned. But you can also disarm them. And if you're careful, you can bring the gunpowder barrel back to your ship and use them to, like, sink other players' ships. Use them as a weapon, which we did actually manage to do at one point. I think it was Tom managed to to sneak aboard another player's ship plant it on the bottom deck and just blow it up, which was which is pretty great. <laughs> but it turns out that if you use a harpoon to bring a gunpowder barrel back to the ship, it blows up on impact and the fire spread too quickly and sank our boat. I mean, fortunately, most of the treasure we had stored like then floated to the surface uh, and Tom was able to, to round it up while me and, and Teddy respawned on the other side of the map with a new ship. And then Tom had to keep guard over this treasure whilst we then sailed halfway across the ocean to collect him. Uh, so so we, we didn't didn't lose too much, but uh, but it, it was you know obviously what can only be described as a heck of a blunder. I've also been chipping away at my VR games on my Oculus Quest. Been playing Tetris Effect and Thumper. Got some new games installed, ready to try out as well. A game called Pistol Whip, which is meant to be like a VR John Wick style game. And I've got Beat Saber as well, which I'm looking forward to trying. But mainly, 
this week, I got inspired following the Indie World Nintendo Direct that aired in the last week, as of, you know, this oh, time yeah. of recording. So I decided to try a few of those out. Now, firstly, on, on your recommendation, Chris, I got a short hike, which was... Oh, was, it's a lovely game, isn't really it? really lovely, yeah. Like, very simple, you know, quite a short game about just slowing down and, and getting back to, to nature, getting back to yourself. And it's really, really nice. Yeah, and it's like it's just just landed on on the Switch. What did you play it on, Chris? I, I played it on the PC originally mm. because it, it it's not like a, a tech powerhouse. So my old machine before I got this laptop could still run it. Yeah, and I, I played through that. I think a few months back, just in in one evening, sat down and did it. And and I was like, I, I was really enthralled by it, I guess, because I didn't stop. I just sat down and, and played through the whole thing, which I don't do that often, especially not sat at a mouse and keyboard. The ending especially, like I won't I won't spoil it because it's it's worth playing and it's only a few hours, like you say, but it's it's really touching mm. and it's really surprising. I think the dialogue in that game is is incredibly well written and very naturalistic. Yeah. Despite it being, you know, you're you're a bird climbing <laughs> around a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it it is done really, really well. Lovely game. Well well worth checking out. It's only a, only a few quid. I also got a game called Overland, which is uh, it's just a it's a really really cool little strategy survival game. It's basically a fusion between XCOM and this War of Mine, where you're oh, trying to dear. get <laughs> yeah, it's it's not not as harrowing as this War of Mine. So you're trying to get through these little sort of dioramas, and in each sort of level that you you can sort of find supplies and find like fuel for your for your car. And then you need to get to the next area while tr- avoiding these these aliens, which are sort of creeping on you. And I think your aim is to to travel all the way across America, but you need to manage how much fuel you have in your car and if it will be enough to get you to like the next area. And you need to manage your party and manage your resources. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's it's clever concept and really good fun. And it's, it's sort of got a roguelike edge to it because it's it's different every time you play through it. And um, yeah, I I I've managed to get. I think only about 200, I was going to say 200 metres, 200 miles uh, into the journey on my first attempt. And I'm doing a bit better on the second time. So yeah, we'll see see how I go. But it's, yeah, really, really good. Then I got Raji, an ancient epic, which is a fairly revolutionary game from an indie developer in India. And it draws a lot of inspiration from Hindu mythology and is set in ancient India. And it's a whole lot of content that, like, we just don't see much of in in Western popular culture. So it's mm. it's really really great to find something that is using this incredible wealth of story and culture in a video game. And yeah, it's really really good. It looks gorgeous. Got a beautiful art style. It's not a downside at all, but it owes a lot to many many games. It's it's really sort of combined elements from from so many different things it's got elements of prince of persia in the like the movements it's got a similar art style something like journey and it's very reminiscent of diablo in terms of the combat it actually it overall like it, it reminds me quite a lot of those um the isometric lara croft games like the arcade ones which, okay. which are really really good games as well you know i recommend those there's elements of Bastion in there and the way it like presents the narrative and there's even elements of like the origami king, but but not really because it's, it's just some rotating puzzles, but I guess that's just zeitgeist rather than inspiration. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only just starting out, so I'm looking forward to seeing how it unfolds and, you know, I'll keep you posted. Next, I also got <laughs> Evergate, which uh, at first I, I thought when I saw it featured on the Indie World Direct, I thought it was a bit of an Ori and the Blind Forest ripoff. 
I mean, there are certainly similarities in terms of its aesthetic and its design, but it's not like an adventure game or like a Metroidvania game. It's just an out-and-out puzzle platform game. And it's it's very, very tough, I must say. It's It's got... I mean, it's got a really fun central mechanic that... So each level, there's platforms and a goal you need to get to. And there'll be sort of crystals floating in the air. And certain parts of these platforms are glowing white. And you have the ability to shoot out a soul beam. And the way this works is if you shoot a white surface through one of these floating crystals, it will activate the crystal in different ways. Either it will like boost you or turn into a platform or trigger something to move. And then you try and navigate your way to the goal whilst also trying to fulfill some other objectives like getting all of the little collectibles or destroying all the crystals or, or whatever. And then you can unlock more abilities, etc, etc. I'm not a huge way in, but I've played like, I've played a good hour of it. And, and it's, I mean, it is very, very good. It reminds me quite a bit of Celeste, actually, in terms of its sort of puzzle platform mechanics and, and it's, it's certainly its difficulty. But now that I'm getting used to this main mechanic, it's it's i'm starting to really get into the flow of it and it's yeah it's, it's very very good it performs fantastically on the switch as well like barely no loading times it's really worth checking out one last thing i promise one last thing <laughs> is <laughs> outside of the indie world direct i also gave the game fall guys a go on my ps4 which is uh this this new like sort of ridiculous battle royale multiplayer game it's free on PlayStation Plus at the moment for like, well, it might not be actually when this episode comes out because <laughs> I think it's just for, for the month of August. But the gameplay lends a lot to sort of, is it the game show um, Total Wipeout? The one with like the yeah, inflatable yeah. things and spinny things. And, and also Takeshi's Castle, yeah, if you ever Takeshi's watched Castle that. Takeshi's <laughs> Castle or like Ultimate Beastmaster, stuff like that. And it's also very reminiscent of, of, of uh, games like Mario Party. So the idea is like, okay, so round one, you'll be loaded into a minigame with 59 other people. And it'll be a random minigame from a you know this pool of, of different ones on offer. And the first 40 or so to complete the minigame will then go through to round two and so on and so on until there's one winner. And I've, I've played, you know, I played quite a few rounds of it and I managed to get down to the last 10 on one go, which is quite good. And there's there's loads of different mini games. There's like sort of standard obstacle courses that you have to run through and like avoid traps and gaps. There was like a rotating jumping game where you had to avoid swinging beams for as long as possible. There was this sort of like a, I don't know, sort of like a Mario Kart battle style setup, little arena thing where you had a tail and you could grab the tails of other people on the opposing teams. And then the team with the fewest tails at the end of the match were eliminated. There was also a game called Egg Scramble, which was sort of like Hungry Hippos, if you could also steal marbles from out of the mouths of the other hippos, but played <laughs> with eggs. And it was that was really, really cool. But it's really silly. It's really fun. And it's it's so entertaining that even if you lose, it's so like it's just so entertaining that you don't even mind because it's always just quite funny and there's loads of like currency to like unlock more outfits and stuff i've seen people dress up as like a hot dog and a dinosaur and all kinds of silly things but yeah i'm i'm looking forward to playing a bit more of that at some point so thanks for joining us this week uh, oh no, uh, <laughs> how about you guys what uh, what eight or nine games have you played this week Minting. oh um cool so the first of Eight games I've definitely played this week. <laughs> um, well, again, on Chris's recommendation or his sort of reminding, I picked up New Star Soccer again and I've been playing through that. Yes. Oh, excellent. Yeah. What a fool I was not to include it on my list. I really love it so much. 
That's all I've played. <laughs> oh, last Tuesday we played Mario Kart and Worms together, didn't we? Oh, we did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's yeah. what I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to bring my total up to 10 games played this week, so I didn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, we had a fantastic time where the three of us, I realised like for the amount of time we've spoken with each other and talked about video games, the amount of time we've played video games, the three of us together, is very, very small. Very small. Almost almost none mm. as, as a trio. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was rather sort of unsuccessfully recorded because <laughs> we're still sort of in the process of figuring out, say we, I'm still in the process of figuring out how all my capture stuff works. So unfortunately, whilst we did have an amazing round of worms, the uh, the video for that is uh, is lost, but the memory remains, and we had a fantastic <laughs> time. It was great, great fun to play with you guys. And then we 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 attempted to play through all forty eight tracks of Mario Kart Eight Deluxe. A fool's errand. <laughs> yeah, and by the but yeah, by the time we got to halfway through, and we played for like what felt like about two hours, we were like, we can't, we can't, we can't go on. <laughs> This is exhausting. But I have got some footage of, of of that, so I'm going to try and cut that into a video to put online. But, but certainly when when we three meet again post-lockdown, we will do 48 tracks, but we'll do it local multiplayer, and uh, which, yeah. will be, which will be even more fun. Yeah. How about you, Chris? What have you played this week? Not much. Hmm? Similar to Minty, I, I haven't played that much this week. What I have done, uh, which is quite rare for me, is I went through my collection and I've traded in about 60 or 70 games. <gasps> like a huge bag. And and basically, for, for proper context to explain why, over the years of not having a decent computer, I've still amassed an absurdly large Steam collection. Okay, yeah. And basically, anytime there was a Humble Bundle that had decent stuff in it or, or some of the other bundle sites, like one called Indie Gala, I, I bought from quite a few times, I'd, I'd buy these Steam keys and think, well, one day I'll have a machine that can run <laughs> it. And it's just been sat in the background, just the number has been growing. And, you know, despite the fact of me not really tending to it. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably taken like about a decade of, of buying this stuff. But in the here and now, I, I open my laptop that, I, that I've just bought recently, look at Steam, and I've got almost 2,000 digital games. Jesus wept. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had fun just installing bits and pieces and, and seeing what's good and games I know and games I don't know. But what it, it got me to do is think about okay, if I'm playing a game like Unreal Tournament, like I mentioned the other week, Mm. at this kind of absurdly high resolution and it looks great and and it's really fun and it plays well, I don't know what the benefit is in hoarding like an old PlayStation 2 copy of Unreal Tournament as well. I'm glad you've reached this point. Yeah, so there's certain games like that where, where the disparity between the experience I can have on a computer and the experience I can have on an older console is just not comparable for certain games. Mm. So I I went through drawers and I, I picked things out like the PS2 copy of Deus Ex, I'm not going to play that again if I can play the proper game properly on a computer now. Or my original Xbox version of, of Thief Deadly Shadows... Um, you know, ignoring the ignoring the fact it's it's a franchise I'm too scared to play anyway. <laughs> like, why why would I keep the one that runs at like ten frames a second if I have yeah. one that runs perfectly? Yeah. So I've, I've basically gone through and thought, okay, if my Steam copy is a a better experience than the stuff I have in a drawer, get rid of the stuff in the drawer. And and I took like a huge sack down to CEX, and it was it was quite liberating actually to dump like a stuffed bag on the desk and think. Okay, I'm going to walk away, not with loads of credit, but but some credit I can actually use for modern stuff I, I want to play on a console rather than a computer. 
And and for me, like I don't think this is the same as making the choice like I have done the last few years between buying things on, on the Switch or the PS4. Because for that, it's like, okay, the PS4 version of a game might look slightly nicer, but the Switch version is portable. And each time I kind of like weigh up the options as, as what I want out of the product. But with the PC, like compared to like the PlayStation 2 or the Xbox or, or the Xbox 360 as well, the divide is just too great now. And, and I'd be going out of my way to make an experience worse if I was saying, okay, I'm going to play the PS2 version of Soldier of Fortune or something like that. <laughs> so so loads of stuff went. Yeah, so not really so much a story of what I've been playing this week, just more a story of uh, what I've been jettisoning. Yeah. <laughs> can you, can you use fact, it in that we're, tense? Yeah, we're, we're like minus net games this week uh, between the three of us, despite the fact that I've apparently done nothing else than play yeah. games. Yeah, plus, plus 10, plus 1, minus 70. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for that, Chris. Uh, <laughs> shall we move on to the rankings? Oh, go on. Let's do it. Starting this week, we have Clement Minty Booth. Please, can you tell us about your 24th favourite video game of all time? My friends in high school loved first-person shooters, and they were good at them. I think a couple of weeks ago, I talked about enjoying Halo 2 at a friend's house in the summer holidays and getting thoroughly paddled online (laughs) we also spent an entire weekend trying to get through the very first gunfight in the darkness not actually succeeding also doing quite well in stuff like medal of honor but boy it's tricky playing first person shooters with a controller like i know why you always go about using a keyboard and mouse jonathan yep that my friends (laughs) were good at controller first person shooters was a weird point of pride for them so when I told them I was playing this game, the first thing they said was, that's the one where you can just lock on and you down to aim, isn't it? No wonder you like it. Oh, so Joke's on you, knobheads. Metroid Prime is less about nailing those oh. scopes and more about exploration and discovery. It's an adventure, not a conquest. <laughs> exactly. Not a first-person shooter, a first-person adventure game. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So, Talon 4, a planet virtually untouched by technology. The Chozo who lived there settled to regain their spirituality, eschewing anything but the natural resources to make their homes. It worked, and they ascended beyond the mortal realm. Soon, however, a leviathan seed impacted the planet and brought them back into the physical world. Driven mad by the poison that seeped from the leviathan as they desperately built a great temple to contain it, their once proud structures crumbled, housing nothing but dust and the vengeful mad ghosts of their once peaceful race. Space pirates, hungry for the mutagenic power that the Great Poison could unlock, colonised and mined Talon Four before their experiments grew too loud and too dangerous. Our protagonist, Samus Aran. It's a woman. It's a woman. (laughs) She picks up a distress beacon from an orbiting research frigate, kills the enormous parasite queen tearing it apart, and begins exploring the ravaged planet. Gathering the keys the Chozo left, she gained entry to the impact crater and destroyed Metroid Prime, the worm spoken of in Chozo legend, and ridding the planet of the poison. One and done. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Of course, that's not true. There's another two games in the main series, and that's all there will ever be, let's be honest, but who? (laughs) What an opening chapter. The Talon Overwatch. World is a great starting area. It gently undulates with life cowed by the threat of Phazon, grey skies gently raining down onto your visor. The reflection of Samus's face when you look at something bright, it's it's immersive stuff. And you go through different areas, you fend off monsters and bosses, you get new equipment, you find new areas with your new equipment, you kill new monsters and bosses in that new area with your new equipment, then you find new areas branching off older areas with your new equipment <laughs> in what lesser minds would call too much backtracking. What? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Not enough. 
yeah. <laughs> Useless sentence to say. <laughs> anyway, each power-up makes you feel stronger and comes not only with the heady bloodlust that a new weapon gives you, but different weapons open different doors and different suit upgrades give you the ability to withstand extreme temperatures or move freely in water, that sort of thing. You feel stronger, but the impetus is always to use that strength to push further into the mysteriously desolate world of Talon 4, to discover and to explore. That rhymed. The flow of exploration is at once gentle and relentless. The exposition and lore is constant, yet clandestine. A big mechanic in the game is the scan visor, which you use to find weak points to lock onto in combat, as well as assessing, I don't know, the structural composition of different rocks and breakable walls that might hide a power-up that you can only access if you have the right weapon to destroy Bendesium. There's also uh, Space Pirate data logs that give you an insight into their sordid experiments and quests for domination, clues to the MacGuffins that you need to open up the final area, and account of the events leading up to the present from the perspective of the Chozo. It's easy to miss them, but... Having you collect them by using an ingrained mechanic means that you'll invariably have a few if you, even if you're playing it for the first time. And what lies within is tantalising enough for you to go back and try and find the rest. It's nice that they're a little more ingrained into the game rather than it sort of just being a hidden collectible. That's probably why I missed so many in Bioshock Infinite because they were just sort <laughs> of those little like Morantz things, weren't they? they just, you just sort yeah. of picked them up and it's like, oh, <laughs> Comstock. Um, the lettuce twins that sort of thing (laughs) are the lettuce twins characters (laughs) sorry the lechuses (laughs) excellent and even though to me it's not the most important part of the game the combat is still great the lock-on system isn't just hold down the l button to to win you still have to move well you still have to uncover weak points and dodge attacks to vanquish foes especially bosses and um, the different weapons and visors work together to give fights an element of puzzle solving as well as um as well as survival so yeah metroid prime is not a first person shooter it's an adventure game and that's why i love it so much damn straight Damn flipping straight did you ever play it chris no. i can't remember no oh. it's um <laughs> You know, no, it, it's one of those brilliant masterpieces that I never played, like all the Zelda games. I mean, it's not as good as Bubsy, is it? Well. If it ever comes to the Switch in, in this fabled trilogy pack that has now been missing in action for about two years, yeah. hopefully I'll get to play it. But yeah, I, I don't know what the fate of this franchise is now, or this kind of like spin-off of the franchise or branch of the franchise, whatever you want to call it. Because as, as Minty alluded to, four is never happening. Like they're they're still advertising now for like oh, can someone direct this project please? It's just yeah. it, it's not it's not going to happen at least in the lifespan of this version of the Switch. I don't think so. Who knows? But it would be great to actually play the original trilogy because you both rave about them. And by the sounds of what you said, Minty, in, in terms of how this is a first person game that's not really a first person shooter, I, I think I'm much more likely to enjoy it for for it being something a little bit different. I can say with all certainty that you will enjoy it. Well, there we go. I mean, if nothing else, I I, I could play it on the Wii, I suppose, or I I could emulate the GameCube version or something, but I just want it on the Switch. I I just want it on my my big shiny console now. Moving on, we have my game. Jonathan. I mentioned earlier, as I have many times before, that I missed out on the 16-bit generation. I also missed out on the N64. I I had my, my GameCube when other people had playstation 2s and xboxes and and when people were playing on their 
PS3s and Xbox 360s, I was playing on my GameCube and I was playing on my GameCube when other people were then thinking about getting a PS4 and an <laughs> Xbox One. <laughs> and I ended up getting a Wii U, which I do not regret. But then I finally got back into the more mainstream video game market when I finally bought a, a PlayStation 4. And I was very aware that there were a lot of games that I'd missed out on from, from never owning any PlayStation machine. So when I got my PS4, my, my first port of call was, was to catch up with, with some games, but not the, the big first party games that, that I'd missed out on, but rather some indie games that had caught my attention over the preceding few years that I hadn't been able to play until now. And these were mainly games that fell into the category, well, in fact, that actually helped define the movement of video games as art. Amongst my first batch of purchases, I bought and played Dear Esther, Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, Firewatch, Jazz Punk, Virginia, Hellblade. So I could finally catch up with them. And most of those games, no, in fact, all of those games are absolutely incredible. But there was one game that stood out apart from those, really the game that defined the idea that, that video games could tread the line between entertainment and art. Uh, and that game is, is, is what has become my 24th favourite video game of all time, which is Journey. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, I was a bit hesitant going into Journey because I, I didn't know much about it other than the art style and the tremendous hype. And... I was yet to be sold on the video games as art idea. Like, as, as you know, I've had quite strong opinions on what makes a video game a video game. And having turned criticism on things like The Last of Us and Red Dead Redemption 2 for veering too far away from what makes video games video games, which is good gameplay. And I always think that that should be the priority when making a video game. Otherwise, why are you making it a game? And I didn't know whether Journey was going to be something like this that, that looked nice, but didn't feel good to play or was fun, you know, because at that point, the only way I could envisage something that was a video game as art, it was as a visual thing. Yeah, it looks lovely. But then I turned it on and played it. And my first impression was, this is really fucking slow and boring. <laughs> <laughs> I seemed to just be trudging through sand at a snail's pace, and, and I didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it. It didn't matter that it looked gorgeous in 4K, and the music was certainly stirring sort of something in me. <laughs> <laughs> but then I played a bit more, and... I started to get a little idea of what I was meant to be doing. I started to realise that I was benefiting more, experiencing my increasing freedom of movement, given the restrictions I'd had before. I realised that I started to form in my mind my own objectives without any overt signposting. And I started leaning into the flow that the game was creating. And, and soon I found myself utterly swept up in, well, the journey. <laughs> and one of the things that this game does better than the most games aiming to create a, a cinematic gameplay experience is, is how organically it does this. Yeah, the visuals are stunning. The, the art style is utterly magnificent and the soundtrack is sweeping, majestic, beautiful, all the good adjectives you can find. And it, it rivals any of the best Hollywood soundtracks from like Hans Zimmer or, or Gabriel Yared. And rather than force you into a certain situation at a certain time under certain circumstances that are beyond your control in order to create a cinematic moment, you find yourself naturally swept up in the rhythm and flow of the game that you feel like 
like you're the conductor of this cinema and when the visuals and the music and your beautiful acrobatic movement coalesce to form these like perfect vignettes it it it's almost transcendental like i remember the first time this properly happened for me after i'd sort of let myself you know give in to the game and and really start to lose myself in it and there was this moment where you're inside this vast tower and you find a like a switch to, to activate it. And, and all of a sudden, this tower comes to life and there's there's light and, and particles and shapes sort of around. And all of a sudden you can you can you can float like like you're in water, but you're you're flying through the air. And you start to activate these these beacons that, that allow you to ascend higher and higher up the tower. Uh, and after a while the tower starts to spawn these like enormous jellyfish-like creatures out of this light and these shapes and, and you can bounce on them and this will help you climb further up and then a whale made out of ribbons and light appears for you to ride on and, and the way this this freeform movement worked in this essentially like low gravity areas and the way the like the monument of this tower brought real reverence with it and the awe-inspiring size and, and design of these creatures around you, it, it just melded into something really, really special. And and I just, I, well, I, I wept. I absolutely wept. And I remember it dawning on me at that point that this game had taken me from utterly unimpressed to weeping in <laughs> such a short space of time, which, I mean, it's, that's really quite an achievement. And the game is so beautiful that it, it, it does justify its classification as a piece of art. But something I haven't mentioned that, that Chris spoke really nicely about when the game featured in his list is the, the cooperative element of the game. And, and this is a whole side of the game that I had no idea existed. And it's a side of the game that then elevates the entire experience to a new level. It unlocks something primal and existential that all the brilliant art design and stunning music can't can't do on its own. So when another player appeared in my game, I was initially totally clueless as to what was happening. I, I thought, well, is this like an NPC or is this an enemy? Or maybe like, you know, in the style of Sega Rally or Mario Kart, is this a developer ghost that I need to try and beat or something? I, but slowly it began to dawn on me that, that this was another real person controlling this character. And they were on the same journey as me. And we both had the same agenda and, and purpose. And my initial impression was one of sheer annoyance, as <laughs> it would be when I come across another person in real life. Like, my general rule is that all people are awful unless prove otherwise. And my interaction with strangers online, especially in games, has almost always been an outright genocide contemplatingly horrible affair you know I, I i can count the interactions i've had that made me warm to someone i didn't know in an online gaming capacity on the fingers of two fingers <laughs> <laughs> but the way that journey presented this other person stripped of all other forms of communication other than a basic whistle to simply and, and vaguely just indicate meant that our relationship developed in a very different way the game establishes a connection between two people under the basis that you have a huge amount in common in that both of you, at that exact moment in time, no matter where in the world you are, you have the same immediate goal. And it also gives you the freedom to embrace or ignore the other people. You don't need them to get through the game, but if you decide to imbue a small amount of trust in them, you may find that your journey becomes slightly less arduous. In my first playthrough of Journey, I encountered a couple of players early on who, who then, you know, disappeared at some point. But then a third person appeared just before, it was about the halfway point in the game, and ended up staying with me throughout the rest of the adventure. And like Chris said, 
you start to form a really beautiful connection with this person. And, and there were times when I would see them disappear into the distance as I was struggling on a section and then found that they waited for me on the other side or that they'd found and indicated a way out so that I could continue with them rather than them just charging ahead. And the further I got through the game, the more I was hoping that, that this person would stay with me for, for longer and longer because I, I really wanted to reach the end of the game with them. And then I found myself eagerly waiting at the end to find out who had accompanied me, you know, for most of my journey. Uh, I really felt a profound connection with them, like like a soulmate you meet by chance on holiday. <laughs> I mean, no game has ever made me feel that way about a stranger. And like I said, I, I don't like people as a general rule. So that's a remarkable thing to do. And that's the real magic of Journey. I think that the, the beautiful flow of the game and, and the audio-visual experience you have as you play through it, it, it is enough to make it this high up on my list because it, it's just so stunning and feels absolutely incredible to play. But for a game to also transcend the genre is something very special. And so whilst, whilst I love this game, I also have a huge amount of respect for it as well. I would highly recommend going back and listening to the episode with our 57th favourite video games and hear Chris talk about it because he covers some lovely areas of the game that, that I haven't touched on. And probably more importantly, highly recommend playing Journey at some point in your life. So please do that. It's really good. Here we go. It's really, really good. <laughs> I, I mean, you you describing the, the social aspect as being primal and existential, That that's an unbelievable line to, to, to really communicate like what this game does and and like the unwritten connection stuff and, and everything that you mentioned and that I talked about when I when I talked to this game up as well that, that's the crux of it it's, it is an existential experience but it's it's existential in, in like a digital space mm. and and I don't know if any other game has achieved that so lastly but not leastly we have Chris Dow's 24th favorite video game of all time Ooh. over to you Chris I mean, as is so often the case, this game could not be any more different than the two that you've just listed. <laughs> like, we, we chat to each other constantly each week for, for, you know, anyone that is not part of the show. Obviously, you can assume that we're going to sort of, you know, plan our episodes and we're going to talk about what we're doing and, and whatever else. But sometimes we'll send each other little silly gaming memes or, or sometimes we'll say what we're playing and sort of encourage others to check it out. But there are also times when one of us will insist the others drop what they're doing and, and pick up a game as like a matter of urgency. <laughs> the game I'm going to talk about today is is one of those that I I bludgeoned you both with for, for a few days when it first got ported to the Switch. Oh, oh, I think I know what this is. It's Super Crate Box. Yes. Oh. <laughs> it is a game that I went on an all-out offensive to, to get you both downloading. Yeah, yeah. When I was going through this list and writing it, there's, there's plenty of games that... I really had to think about where I was going to put them. I sort of like ummed and ahed and, and maybe they'd shift up and down depending on whatever whatever else I, I considered. But I never had any doubt where Super Crate Box was going to be. I knew it was going to be high. I knew it was going to be in kind of the, the top chunk of the list. And it's because it's a really simple high score game, but it's one that every time I put on, no matter what platform it's on, I will play for hours and I, I can't help myself. Like it's it's one of those games that as as soon as I fail and the button says Do you want to restart, I've I've already pressed it. I'm hammering the start button before anything else has happened. Like between, I, I think I've owned this now on the PC. It's free. You can get it on Steam just as a, as a free download. I had it on the Vita. I had it on my old iPhone five, uh, and most recently the Switch. And I've probably played it for a hundred hours at least. And yet it's a game where a single run can last as little as 10 or 15 seconds if, if you kind of like lose your wits or, or you face an unfortunate pattern of enemies. 
it's it's an arena based high score game. So for anyone that's never seen it before, if you think about the way stages are laid out in something like Bubble Bobble or the original Mario Brothers arcade game, you've got kind of like little platforms, like a symmetrical stage, and everything takes place in that single screen. There's an assortment of weapons that you can pick up, and there's an assortment of enemies to shoot. And that's basically what it is to, to look at. But the twist here, and, and I think this is one of my favourite like pieces of subversion in, in game development I've ever seen, is that killing an enemy gets you nothing. It clears them off the screen, but you earn no points. You, you earn no progress whatsoever. And the only way your score goes up is when you collect a crate, like part of the title, Super Crate Box. And every time you pick up a crate, your weapon changes. So some are good, some are not so good. And and this sort of dynamic of, of knowing that you could be chucking out something that you are quite proficient at using, like a grenade launcher or a magnum or a bazooka, in favour of something that's unknown, but probably useless, like a pistol or or the disc gun, which oh, anyone who's played it will, gun, know, yeah. will know how unpleasant this weapon is, <laughs> means that every single point you get is hard won. And it's just, it's a genius piece of design. Like, honestly, it turns the whole genre of just like a score-chasing arcade game totally on its head. But it does so in a way that is incredibly slick and easy to understand as well. Because as soon as you shoot an enemy and your score doesn't go up, you push yourself forward and go, okay, well, I'll see what this box does. Score goes up, you know what happens. And, And that encourages you to just really be aggressive in how you play it's something you really have to push yourself to to move it's not a game about sitting still once you understand that premise it will be hours until you really latch on to, to how to be good at the game but it's something that you will always feel you're making progress in and I, and I really really love that it's it's just such a an intoxicating rush of, of an arcade game what I really like is that there's no safe strategy like you can't just camp in a corner with a minigun and, and just keep the enemy waves at bay because, as I mentioned, unless you were collecting another weapon, your score's not going up. You're making no progress. You could survive for six hours and, and it will be as bad as a run that you just turn on and die instantly. <laughs> so, so it's a game that forces you to, to always push forwards. And inaction just means stagnation, essentially. You, you have to be moving. And your initial instincts, just because of how we're used to playing these sort of games, is that get a good weapon, try and sort of you know manage the play space, shoot as much as I can, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll gain something out of that. But that's never going to get you anywhere. You, you have to sort of really change the way you're, you're interpreting what's on screen and just thinking, okay, what can I do in the few seconds I'm going to have this gun before I've got another point and then I've got to readapt my strategy? Of, of course, even when you start to get a handle on things, your strategy falls apart completely as soon as your score goes up and hits maybe double digits because then enemies are spawning faster. The enemy types are, are expanded ever so slightly so there's a bit more to think about and a, a bit more to deal with. And it's, it's about then managing not only the play space and, what, and how you're moving about, but knowing that, okay, every weapon does have a weakness, but every weapon also has these other sort of considerations you have to make for, for better and for worse. So you might have to think about, okay, the firing rate of a particular gun. Am I going to be able to take out that enemy before he gets to me to, to allow me kind of safe passage through? Or in, in the case of something like the disc gun, it's going to ricochet off a wall that will kill me unless I'm then also moving onwards to a, to a different space. So you're, you're constantly thinking about these things to keep the game a very active active play experience. I think the way it kind of sets your goal as always being that next crate, it becomes a game about sort of firing and moving and firing and moving. And it's almost like you think of it in terms of the, the classic scenes in like action films where someone's hacking through a thicket using a machete. That, that's what this game feels like. You're always having to cut through things to get to that next point. Now, when I first picked this game up, I, I played it properly 
like the early 2010s, I think. I, I think I had it on the Vita maybe like just after that or something like that was when I really got stuck in. And, and as alien as the concept was, like I mentioned, something very, very different and, you know, really changing what an arcade score game was. In order to, to find my feet in this, I had to conceptualize the whole thing very differently. And I thought about it at the time as being like, it's almost like learning a new language. And you have to kind of indulge me for a bit here. Hopefully it makes sense eventually where I'm going to. Like if, if, you're, <laughs> learning, if you're learning French, for instance, you start with the nouns. So you start with the real basics and, and transposing that to Super Crate Box, you can see, okay, there's platforms, there's, there's enemies, there's bullets, there's guns. Once you've got a handle on kind of the real basics, then you start thinking about the actual verbs. So you've got, okay, we're, we're jumping, we're shooting, we're dodging, we're collecting. And within a few hours, you're, you're making like, with a language, you start making pigeon sentences. Thing, things start to run together a little bit more. And, and in Super Crate Box, you're then getting scores of like five and seven and 10, up to 15. And, and you're getting better as you go. But you're, you're still going to hit that kind of stumbling block. And, and the big difficulty, I suppose, is getting past like the beginner's bluff that you have when you learn a language. Like I remember being in year seven at school, picking up the very basics of French and going home thinking I was just like the absolute bollocks. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I can say anything. This language is easy because because I could say things like, uh, où est la bibliothèque? <laughs> uh, and je peux te marguer près de la mer? And all of a sudden it's like, I'm an absolute hero. Like this language stuff is a piece of piss. <laughs> and, and Super Crate Box feels like that. Like you, you get to this point where it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I think I'm getting the hang of this. But if you persevere with this game or if you persevere with language, you have to then start making better choices. So in, in terms of language, you have to start understanding that you can't just use these cure-all sentences for everything. And, and in terms of a game, you have to start managing the play space better. And you have to become more adept at kind of clearing your path to the next crate. Eventually, you'll get to the point where you are now crafting better sentences. And, and in terms of game time, you're, you're then surviving for minutes rather than seconds. You know, it's, it's the difference as well, like a couple of years into learning a language when you can look at a written paragraph of, of French, say, and be able to spot enough key words that suddenly you can you can take meaning out of something. You're, you're not reading it fluently by any means, but all of a sudden this paragraph isn't impenetrable. It, it means something to you. And and in terms of the game, that means you're, you're kind of, you're building and building and, and things start to make more sense. And as your score goes up, it's not uncommon then to every game that you, you start, you're getting 30, 40 points and, and you're moving upwards. And all of a sudden, you 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 know, if, if it was a language, you're starting to pick up a, a real feel for, for the way you use plosives or fricatives and, and how you're forming all these different mouth sounds. <laughs> and, and in terms of that, it's like, it's the difference between running around like a big anglicized play park like Disneyland Paris and thinking, oh, I know the language or going to like a local town and actually being able to like order something in a shop or a restaurant. It's it's like it, it takes time, but but you'll get there, and it's it moves you away from just pointing at something and saying uh, la la bread <laughs> uh, to to actually be able to like say say what it is, and the shopkeeper understand what you're asking for. Now, what is really interesting about this game though is that once you start getting better and and you start unlocking some of the the kind of characters and, and different bits and pieces in this game, you also unlock higher difficulty settings. And and what I found really interesting is even when I felt you know, using the language analogy, quite fluent in, in the standard regular difficulty. As soon as you boost it up to the second and third difficulties, it's like learning a new language again because everything is so much faster. You, you understand the similarities in terms of, okay, the syntax of a sentence, as it were. But 
you, you've got to really start thinking about this idea. Okay, well, Spanish now, what is this? How is Spanish different to French? And, and you're back to that same stage. You're going like, uh, uh, El Bredo. <laughs> like, you, you, it, ta- it takes time again to kind of build your way up that you might have the real shell of it and the basics, but you're starting from scratch again to really kind of learn how to play this game. And I, I just love that it's, it's a game that I don't think you ever really master. You get better at, certainly. And it's a game that, as I mentioned, over 100 hours, I, I'm, I'm quite decent at. But it's just a remarkable piece of really compact design that does a huge amount with very little. And and for me, it's really exciting because it, it showcases that sometimes the best ideas in any sort of development is not always about iterating. Sometimes it can be you have to subvert. You have to kind of look at what you've got, flip it upside down and say, okay, we're, we're looking at this from a totally different way. And, and how can we solve problems from this angle? It's just, it's a great game of... of reactive strategy there's only three stages in the game and and yet i've never got bored it's just a very very good game and i hope even if you haven't the two of you played it quite as much as i have over the years you at least got something out of me badgering you to buy it at the time <laughs> Très bien. <laughs> I, I really like it yeah I, I i'm not quite there on the uh on your plane of appreciation but i i yeah i'd like to dump about half an hour into it every now and then it's it's really really fun i just find it so addictive i, I don't know what it is like mm. I, I can have back-to-back really poor runs like i put it on today for the first time in months and and the first few plays i i got nowhere and then as you start to kind of get the muscle memory back and, and you're reminding yourself kind of the speed a, a weapon fires and and the speed of weapon reloads and everything else then it all kind of slots back into place. Mm. I don't know, as, as with anything that you learn in this way, it's why I use language as the example. It doesn't go away. Like they're, they're skills that might kind of like be a bit dormant, but you can pick them up again just through uh, like exposure. And, and it's a game I think is always really exciting because as soon as I'm past that first kind of couple minute hurdle, then, then I feel myself getting better again. And I get that rush of thinking, oh, I can, I can get more. I can get 30, I can get 40, I can get 50 and, and building and building. Yeah, it's it's probably one of my favourite score-based games. I I just think it's very, very clever. Fantastic. Well, there we go. Another three games from us three gents. First of all, we had... Metroid Prime. And then we had Journey, before finally... Super Crate Box. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like the podcast, share the podcast on social media. You can reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash our3cents. Please do chat to us there about these games, games you've played, things you might like us to talk about in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at crate underscore box. At what? Um, <laughs> oh. Chaz underscore Hodges. Uh, I'm Clement underscore Boo. Please do find us on our other channels, Instagram.com slash O3C podcast, and search for Our Three Cents on YouTube. You can also subscribe to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash O3C podcast. And also, if you really fancy it, do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Our Three Cents. And uh, do consider giving a little bit of pennies to us in exchange for some fantastic perks. And we will see you next week for our 23rd favourite video games of all time. Bye then. One man. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. 
I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual formats to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering. Come along and play! Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network.